move now to canvas a few different ethical systems that are pretty relevant today. Um, let's start with eudaimonism. Why don't you just briefly tell us uh, exactly what it is? It, it is basically uh, in what I've been talking about. Uh, so it is, the, it is the approach to ethics that classical philosophers and theologians all, with just a few exceptions, held. And it was the way everybody approached ethics really until the end of the Middle Ages. And it's, um, it's you know, probably the best way to say it is that it's, it's built around the idea of eudaimonia. That's where it gets its name. So eudaimonia is a Greek word that means, uh, the typical translation is happiness. Um, but no Greek would have thought of happiness in the way that we typically think of happiness today as a kind of superficial, uh, subjective feeling. They most, pretty much all of them thought that they had different conceptions of what it actually amounted to, but they all thought of it as something objective. And, um, a kind of solid, it, it, it basically meant a life uh, well-lived, uh, a, a, a flourishing life, well-being. And so these days, a lot of people just want to use the word flourishing instead of happiness to translate eudaimonia. Um, and that's, that's probably a good idea except that we, we still do have the word happiness and it. And in many ways, it, it plays a similar role, even though our conceptions of it these days as moderns is very thin and subjective and so on. So we have to, we have to combat that. But the idea is that eudaimonism is, is the view, is a, is a eudaimonia-based uh, ethic. So I'll start using the word happiness, but what I mean by happiness, unless I say otherwise, is what is is this more classical notion right. of of flourishing, well-being, and so on? So it's a it's it's a it's a, an approach to ethics that sees this idea of flourishing or happiness as its fundamental starting point. So it's a <clears throat> to use a technical term, it's a teleological ethical system. Uh, teleological comes from the Greek word telos, which means end or goal. So it, like some other ethical uh, theories, is, is oriented toward the realization of a, of a good, of a goal that, that um, is considered to be the good that that theory is after. Right. And so the good in this case is eudaimonia, human flourishing. And, um, and so that's, that's the basic idea. Now I can, Aristotle is probably the best known eudaimonist, most influential of all. And he said, and I think this is right, uh, not just for the ancients, but also even for now, that he said, uh, everybody has some conception of the good as the good life, the, the, the sort of thing that makes life worth living and kind of integrative picture of, of what is good that's worth living for. Um, he was talking about his own, you know, other ethical theories of his time. He's saying that everybody kind of recognizes that we're after that. That's what we want. That's the thing we want more than anything else. And he said, everybody kind of agrees in calling it eudaimonia. But they have very different views of what eudaimonia actually amounts to. Mm. And so we could kind of think of eudaimonia in, this, in that first sense as a, a thin notion or empty. It's just like a placeholder. We could call it X. Everybody's after X. We all agree on that. We just, we just disagree on what X actually is. Mm. And so Aristotle had his own view, and he went through the alternatives. Is it pleasure? No, that can't do it. Is it, is it money? No. Is, you know, all these different things. Um, 
And I think it's still true today. And this is where it kind of maps onto the happiness thing. I don't think anybody is opposed to happiness um, on, on some description, right? Mm -hmm. But certainly not people aren't opposed to human flourishing, I don't think. Right. But we, where the disagreement is, what does it amount to? Where do we find it? Is it in money? Is it in pleasure? Is it in sex? Is it in God? What, what is it? So it's a, it's a, it's a still the conversation. What's, what's different though, is that again, for eight, for these classical thinkers, they didn't think of ethics primarily as coming up with a list of principles or laws or rules. Uh, they, they thought of it as the quest uh, for a good life in a, in a robust sense, not just, Hey man, living the good life. Um, so that in a nutshell is what eudaimonism is. Would you say that there is any precedent uh, to say that Jesus was eudaimonist in the scriptures? I think so. So one of the things uh, that's interesting is, I mean, I'll back up for a second. I would say the vast majority of Christian ethicists today assume that to, to that Christian ethics is about obligations, rules, laws, and so on. And because the Bible has a lot, you know, it's got a whole section of books on law. So that that's, makes perfect sense. And there's plenty of laws and there's 10 commandments and there, there's all that. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's very surprising, you know, it just doesn't seem right that it could be about how human beings flourish. But if you look at the, at the actual law texts in Deuteronomy, for example, Moses very frequently describes the law as showing people how they can flourish. You know, obey these laws so you can have well-being. Um, you know, all the other nations are going to look look at us and say, "How our gods don't give laws like that? These are such wise people." And all the well, you know, they're not just saying, "Well, you know, the 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 Hebrews have have more rules than anybody else." No, <laughs> saying they know how to live. And then when you look at, at, at Proverbs and the wisdom literature, that's, that's what it's all about. And, and very often Christian ethicists say, well, that's not ethical. That's about prudence. That's about, you know, making money or something like that. But that's not ethical material. The only ethical material in the Bible is the laws. Well, that's just because you have a narrow view of what, what is ethical. If you look in the, in the Proverbs, it's all about virtues. It's, it's all about how to live an intelligent, wise life that flourishes, that is successful in, in, in these different ways. I think it's, it's deeply ethical. And then when you come to Jesus, um, you know, I'm, I don't want to claim that he was, you know, influenced by Aristotle or any other uh, philosopher or anything, but I would agree with with Dallas Willard, who said what Jesus was, was answering in the Sermon on the Mount were classic philosophical questions like, what is a good person? What kind of life is worth living? Uh, what is good? Who is good? Well, that's that really is that's what classical ethics is all about and so jesus gave very different answers to those questions from somebody like aristotle not completely different but but he's asking the same questions and so for a long time i've always thought i've i've thought that jesus was that the sermon on the mount was a, especially the beatitudes was a kind of eudaimonistic picture there's one other piece to the the puzzle there, and that is that the word for blessed, blessed are the poor in the spirit, um, makarioi, 
which is plural from akarios, blessed. Um, that's a near. That's a that's another word that Aristotle uses for happiness. It's a near synonym for eudaimonia. And it it again it means flourishing. Uh, and if you look in the Old Testament, um, things like Psalm one, how blessed is the man who does not, you know. Uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's, he's, it's basically counsel on how to flourish. You know, he says, as a tree planted by the, 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 the stream flourishes. That's what, that's what, you know, God has created us with the natures he has in order that we would live out those natures. We would flourish as those kinds of things. But, but that word blessed there, ash. In, in Hebrew, when, when in, uh, in before Jesus' time, when they, they did a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, uh, if you look in all those places, guess what the word is? Makarios. Makario. And so it's part of the Jewish uh, wisdom tradition to talk about what a flourishing life looks like. So Jesus is using that terminology. And so again, I, I've never wanted to make, I'm not a New Testament scholar. I don't, I don't want to make you know, claims that, but, but I, all I can say is this resonates with me as, a, as somebody who studies ancient philosophy. And, and but then in a, a few years ago, a guy named Jonathan Pennington, who is a New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary, wrote a book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, in which he makes this case. Mm. He says that's what it's about. And when he translates uh, the, the Beatitudes, he uses the term flourishing. So flourishing are the poor in spirit, etc. So you know, again, without trying to be simplistic and pigeonhole and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, I, I guess the way I would say about Jesus is that he certainly is doing eudaimonistic things. And he may be more than a eudaimonist, but he's certainly not less than a eudaimonist. Right, right. Um, so there are a few popular ethical systems today, and uh, two that we'll mention here are actually uh, closely related. Um, consequentialism and utilitarianism. Um, utilitarianism, as I understand it, is actually a, um, uh, a different type of consequentialism. Yeah. Um, so consequentialism, according to uh, Rush Schaefer Landau, the ethicist, says that acts are morally right just because they maximize the amount of goodness in the world. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the difference between eudaimonism and consequentialism, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, when people hear about uh, eudaimonism, they often confuse it with utilitarianism or consequentialism. Um, and that's because it's a that consequentialism and utilitarianism are teleological ethical theories. Um, they are indirected, just as eudaimonism is. And so it's a common mistake, I think, for people to assume that all, all teleological ethical theories are utilitarian. That's Utilitarianism is the, is the, the boogeyman. And so if you're not, if you're anti-utilitarianism, which you should be, uh, then, you know, then, then you can't be a teleologist in ethics. Uh, but in fact, you can, there more, there's more than one form of, of teleological ethical theory. And we, we can talk about how, how to kind of parse the difference. But um, let's start with utilitarianism and, and put consequentialism in that. Because utilitarianism is the most popular form of consequentialism. Uh, as you say, utilitarianism is a type of, is one, one form of consequentialism. Uh, so it's the view that, um, that 
what makes an act right or wrong is whether or not it maximizes um, the amount of happiness is what is the standard term in the world, or let's say good in the world. Um, There's several things that make that mark off utilitarianism. Uh, first of all, utilitarians have a particular view about what that thing is that, that we're after. Um, and, and most of them in, historically were hedonists. It's about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Um, today, I think m- most utilitarians are preference satisfaction utilitarians. So they, they say the thing to do is to, is to find out what people prefer. That's the good that we're after. And then we figure out how to maximize that. Now, one thing that's distinctive about utilitarians is that they, that what, the, that what they choose as the good that they're after, this is their theory of value, is what they take to be good. What they, what they are after is some form of, of good that is morally neutral, like pleasure or preference satisfaction. Because if you build morality into the end that you're after, um, now you have complicated things. Now it's not merely maximizing the amount of good. It's, you, have, you have to defend that, and, and you, you don't want to muck it up, so to speak. And, and you can get widespread agreement. Everybody wants pleasure. Um, so keep it neutral. Don't make it morally loaded. Um, and it's states of affairs. It's things like units of pleasure or amount of preference satisfaction. It's not things like virtues. Um, it's things that can be produced. Now, where does the producing thing comes in? Come in. That's the theory of action. So the theory of value is what it is that you take to be valuable that you're after. And the preferences for um, non-moral goods of some sort, like pleasure. But then you have to ask the question, okay, so what does an action, what's the relationship between the action that you do and that end? Well, for all utilitarians, and now here's where consequentialism comes in. This is the consequentialist element. For consequentialism, as as the, the definition you read suggests, it's maximizing the amount of good in the world. It's it's producing, it's a maximizing picture of the production of states of affairs of whatever it is that you're after. And so to put it in less sort of abstract terms, it's the end justifies the means. What makes an action right or wrong is that it produces enough of this value what makes it wrong is that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So it's that that's what justifies your action. And that's the only thing. There's only one rule in utilitarianism. Thou shalt <laughs> maximize, you know, pleasure or whatever for the most people. Right. And, and so it really is the end justifies the means. And, and that's the only thing that justifies the means. So, Whatever it takes to produce the maximal amount of that stuff is is the right thing. Right. So, I mean, I would say that the principle of maximizing goodness, I mean, that, that seems to be okay, you know. Um, and, and we've even seen that uh, in the last year and a half with the lockdowns. Um, you know, our policymakers decided that, uh, you know, the saving them, I mean, the best thing to do to save the most people would be to lock down the entire country. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what, what is, so what's what is wrong the with problem? That, huh? yeah, 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 exactly. What's wrong with that? Uh, well, let's distinguish between consequences and consequentialism. Okay. Consequences are important. 
uh, and all all thing all other things being equal, uh, we should try to bring about the best consequences that we can through our action. Okay, so that's that's true, and I think that's part of what's absolutely right about utilitarianism and other forms of consequentialism. The consequences matter. Good consequences are important. <laughs> Bad consequences should be uh, uh, resisted, if at all possible. What consequentialism says is not just that, because you can hold that as a eudaimonist or as some other form of uh, ethical theory. You can think consequences matter. They're good. They're important. What consequentialism says is consequences are all that matters. Okay. So that, that's one thing. Uh, and the maximizing thing. So you said, well, what's wrong with maxim max maximization? Well, not all goods are merely states of affairs that can be maximized. Mm. So... Um, there, this is where consequentialism differs. I'll, I'll make a distinction that's relevant to the, the distinction with the, the difference with eudaimonism. Both of them are built on a for the sake of relation, to use an Aristotle uh, way of thinking about it, doing X for the sake of Y, right? And Y is the end that, that we're after, so we do X. But for consequentialists, the only kind of for the sake of relation is means to end. X is a means to Y. But you know what? This reality is bigger than that. So here's an example. Uh, I'm, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a fly fisherman. And uh, I love, I love to do it. So when I go fly fishing, if I go to a river to fish, I, uh, I drive, I usually have to drive to get there, right? So I drive for the sake of fly fishing. But, you know, I would, I would do any other way to get there if I could, you know, if I could just beam me up Scotty and, you know, zap down there, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly do that. I mean, there, there's nothing special about driving. Driving has nothing to do with fly fishing, except that it's a means to the end of fly fishing, right? And so if it gets me there, that's good. It has no value with respect to fly fishing other than as a means to get there. But when I get in the river and I put on a fly and I cast my fly into the river, I'm also doing that for the sake of fly fishing. But that's not a means to the end of fly fishing, much less a means to the end of maximizing fly fishing. I mean, I don't even know what it would mean to maximize fly fishing, right? Um, fly fishing is an activity. It's not a state of affairs. Um, so what am I doing? I'm not, do I'm not, you know, I'm not casting the fly as a means to fly fishing. What is it? It's, it's part of fly fishing, right? It's a constituent of fly fishing. It, that's what fly fishing is. I'm doing fly fishing by casting the fly. Now, there are other things, too, that I'll, that I'll be doing that are fly fishing. So it is indirect, and I'm doing it for the sake of fly fishing. If it wasn't for fly fishing, I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be just throwing something in the river. But it's not a means. It's not producing anything. It's instantiating it. And so this is just an illustration of the different ways, different forms of for the sake of relations can take. And this is what really distinguishes eudaimonism from any form of consequentialism like utilitarianism. This is at least one of the things. And that is that it is not... Uh, all consequentialism is means and, I mean, that's just what we mean by it. 
the value of an act, it has no other value, there's no other moral value to it, any given act other than the consequences it produces. It's a consequence producing machine. And if it produces good consequences, it's right. And if it doesn't produce as good a consequences, it's wrong. Right. Therefore, the end justifies the means and you could do anything if as long as it produces a good enough outcome. And that's why uh, dictators always, you know, always appeal to, well, the end justifies the means. Um, you know, Stalin said something like one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a, is a statistic. They always appeal to this. Well, I had to do it in order to get this in. It was, a, you know, some people think it's terrible, but well, eudaimonism, eudaimonism is not that way at all. Yes, there are some cases where the, the important thing is to bring about good consequences. And, and maybe they are the sorts of things that can be produced. So <clears throat> if I want to feed people who are hungry, you know, the more people I can feed, the better, of course. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to feed a lot of people. But am I going to, am I going to late, you know, I could actually, uh, you know, maybe the best way to, to feed everybody is I don't have enough food. So I can only feed 75% of the people. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to murder 25% of them so I can achieve the goal of feeding everybody. Well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> uh, but if, if you're just doing means end, well, that's a means, you know. Well, for eudaimonists, we'd say that's just nutty. You would never do that because, because, and here's the other difference between, especially with utilitarianism, the end we're after is a moral end. So at least part of flourishing is, li is living you know, a morally exemplary life, a life according to the virtues, justice. And so I can't do an unjust act for the sake of producing justice. No, it's like my fly fishing thing. I, the way I realize the end of, of, of living a just life is by being just, you know, doing just things and so on. So those are a little bit subtle and this is stuff that, you know, is not nearly talked about enough, but that's the difference. So, so again, I think consequentialism is, is based on a good intuition that consequences are important and good consequences need to be realized. The bad thing is when you think it's consequences are the only thing that matters. And, um, and you're willing to do anything to do that. There's a, there, there is a, for consequentialism, there's no essential connection between the act and the consequences. It's just a producer. It's just a machine. Mm -hmm. So any act is right. If it produces good consequences for non-consequentialist teleological theory, like eudaimonism, it would be no, uh, there is an essential connection between the act and the end. You can't do evil in order to produce good, as Paul says in, in uh, Romans 2, I think it is. I can't remember. But, um, you know, that's the idea. It's anti-consequentialist. It's don't, don't murder somebody in order to make things better. Don't rape you know, because that'll, you know, make it life better for somebody else. No, you don't do that. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems very easy. It's a slippery slope with consequentialism and utilitarianism to deny the inherent worth of human beings. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. And that's for, that's also for another reason. And that is if consequences are all that matter, and even if you build into it as utilitarians do, and cons typically consequentialists, um, to say, well, it's not just for me, because that, that would be egoism. Individualistic consequentialism is egoism. 
what makes an action right or wrong is that it maximizes my pleasure or whatever. Um, utilitarianism sounds very, I mean, I think its motivations are great, but no, what we need to do is, is, is maximize the value for everybody that's affected by it. Great. But again, because partly because it's this mechanistic kind of uh, economist sort of um, way of looking at ethics, all those everybody's are just, they're just numbers, you know, they're just dots on the thing. And so as Bentham, the kind of the founder of modern utilitarianism said, everyone should count as one and no one should count as more than one. Well, it sounds great. But if everyone counts equally, and let's just say there are five people affected by this. Um, now you have the problem, okay, if you could, could you sacrifice one of them in order to bring about a really great outcome for the other four? Well, why not? Because each one counts as one and not no one for more than one. But of course, four is going to count for more than one. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing to resist the tyranny of the majority there. And, and so, you know, um, utilitarianism has been said to be a kind of secularized Christian love your neighbor ethic. It's all about making life better for everybody, but it, the secularized uh, bit makes it a problem because there's a difference between loving your neighbor who is an individual and maximizing benefit for X number of people because in, you know, the Christian view is that your neighbor ultimately belongs to God, not to you. Mm. You love God first and you love your neighbor. And, and there are things you ought never to do to your neighbor, even if it will bring about good consequences. Mm. That's, you know, but, but utilitarianism is, well, all, you, all you're supposed to do is bring about good consequences. It just doesn't have a conception, as you were saying. It, you can't really talk about the inherent worth of the individual because you have to you have to get that somewhere else. You can't just get it in the math, as utilitarianism tries to do. You have to get it. Okay, this person is made by God, created in the image of God, and there are certain things I should never. Yes, all other things being equal, I should try to make the world a better place. But sometimes not all other things are equal. Mm -hmm. There are some things I should never do in order to make the world a better place. I was surprised when reading about consequentialism and utilitarianism, uh, how closely related hedonism is to it. Um, and today we just, we think hedonism is just kind of a do whatever you want, you know, ethic. Um, I mean, it, it's a little bit deeper than that, though, it seems. Um, Schaefer Landau, again, he defines uh, hedonism as a life is good to the extent that it is filled with pleasure and is free of pain. So why don't you um, tell us a bit about that and exactly like how it, how it ties into consequentialism and yeah. utilitarianism. So if consequentialism is primarily a theory of action, it, it says, okay, what is the relation between an act and the end it seeks to achieve? And it's, uh, production it's maximizing it's generating okay so it's the consequences whatever that thing you're after is driving the boat um, hedonism is really a you know a, a different thing hedonism is a theory of value so it's it's about what the kind of the first thing we talked about there about what makes what's the good we're after what's the thing we're after what, what sorts of consequences are we after? Uh, states of pleasure, you know, over, you know, maximize states of pleasure over states of pain. Is it, you know, all these other things? Well, that, all those questions are part of the theory of value. What is valuable? What's the end that we're after? What, what's the good we're after? So you can be a consequentialist and have different views on that. Um, 
You can even be, you can be a utilitarian and have different views on that. Although the early ones were, you were hedonists, you know, as I mentioned, some more recent ones aren't. Um, they have certain things though that they want, as I mentioned, they, they want it to be non-moral and so on. So hedonism, I would say is the most popular, maybe historically most influential theory of value. Because theory of value is asking what makes something good? Um, well, everybody likes pleasure, right? <laughs> Nobody particularly likes pain unless they're, they got some real issues. Uh, masochism or something. Uh, so, you know, that's a good candidate because you get, you get buy-in from everybody, right? And, and that's kind of the way people have, hedonists have thought about it down, you know, down through the ages is, um, but, but what hedonism is, is more than just pleasure is good. You know, we like it more than we like pain. It's, it really is the view that, 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 Pleasure is the good. It is the value, and pain is the disvalue, the the bad. And um, and so it wants to understand all value in terms of states of pleasure or states of pain. And as I say, the early utilitarians were hedonists. Both Bentham and Mill were hedonists, even though they disagreed over details. And, and I think the reason was that they, you know, it's commonsensical, everybody likes pleasure, nobody likes pain. Also, again, it's the buy-in thing. You don't have to make moral judgments. You just, you just figure out what gives people pleasure and what gives them pain. And then you can, as Bentham said, you can do a calculus. You can add up states of pleasure on one side and states of pain on the other. And where, whichever has the highest pleasure over pain, that's the right thing to do. Now I think it, there is a there there is kind of popular hedonism that you were suggesting, you know, that is just kind of a general approach to life. Like what I want is just to you know, man, have a good time, just just experience pleasure. Uh, it's not necessarily a moral theory; it's more of a philosophy of life. Um, now, you diamondism needs to weigh into this because. Um, because like uh, utilitarianism and consequentialism, it's a teleological ethical theory. That is the, what it sets before it is the good, which is attractive to us. It's what we're drawn to. Whereas a rule-based approach to ethics is, is not that. It's just don't, you know, here are the boundaries. Don't go outside of them. Don't do this, do, do that or whatever. But but all teleological theories are, are attractive. They're, in that sense, attractional, maybe we'd say. They're about what, what, what we take to be good and what draws us and so on. Well, um, what we take to be good and draws us is, in fact, something we take pleasure in, right? Right. So <clears throat> classical eudaimonists have always been pro-pleasure. Whereas some of these other rule kind of people have sometimes been anti-pleasure. So C.S. Lewis, um, in, in one place, he says, I'm with all the early church fathers who were pro-pleasure. I'm almost a hedonist, he says. And I know somebody who's argued that he's a hedonist. He, he, he also trashed hedonism. But he, 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 you know, he said, I'm almost a hedonist. because Listen to the way I'm talking, you know. But he said Aquinas and Augustine, all these guys, they were they're the same thing because they saw the good as attractive and compelling and something we ought to take pleasure. So is it just hedonistic? Is eudaimonism just hedonistic? No. But here's where, here's where you have to get kind of sophisticated. Uh, Aristotle said um, he was an anti-hedonist. But he said, pleasure is a good, and when we achieve the end that we're after, we experience pleasure. It's kind of like the frosting on the cake. It's, a, it's an attendant to the 
to the achieving of what we take to be good, pr primarily eudaimonia. It's a kind of satisfaction of, of a flourishing, flourishing life, but it's not the flourishing life itself. It's not the pleasure we're after. Pleasure is the es essential uh, byproduct of it. Thomas Aquinas gave yet a more significant, uh, uh, sophisticated version of sort of the same thing. He says it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to confuse going after X as my good and going after the pleasure of experiencing X. Um, and so he makes technical distinctions there between the essence of a thing and what he calls a necessary uh, 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 well, essentially attribute of it that's not part of the essence, which I won't go into. But I think I think we can kind of see what's going on, that there is a proper sort of pleasure that we get by having, uh, by enjoying the good that we, we seek. But that good would be, the good is what we're after, right? Even if the pleasure didn't come, even for some reason, we, 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 we were prohibited from experiencing that pleasure. It's still a good. It's still worth worth being. So both Aquinas and, and Augustine say, you know, we will, we will experience great pleasure in heaven. It will just kind of overflow from being with God to to the, the you know the 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 full rich experience of flourishing. Sometimes now, um, doing the right thing, uh, it you know, living in a fallen world, we don't we don't get to experience that, but but we still do it. You know, yeah. we still go after what is good. And it in a, in in an unfallen world and in proper circumstances, they they go together. So all of that to say is eudaimonists are regular, can easily be accused of being hedonists because they're pro-pleasure. But it's not the pleasure they're after. It's not the pleasure that makes something good. Uh, it's it's the it's the the good and the the, the right response to actually um, participating in the good is to take pleasure in it. We think value is bigger than pleasure. Even if, ple even if all pleasure is valuable, and that's our, that we could argue with that, but let's just say that, that, that that's a different claim than saying uh, all that is valuable is pleasure. Human flourishing is bigger than just experiencing. That's, this is one of the problems with hedonism, is that how do you cash it out? Well, is it just states of, of felt pleasure versus states of felt pain? That's the way hedonists have, have cashed it out. Well, um, you know, that's that then you have the brave new world. You've got states of experienced felt you know, these felt experiences, but that that's different than doing something or accomplishing something. Many times that takes struggle. Robert Nozick has a great little thought experiment called the experience machine, where he, he's, he asks us to think about plugging in and then we can have whatever experience we want. We have pleasures, we can have, and most of us would say, no, we don't want it. We, we you know, I'd rather live a life where I'm maybe struggling and accomplishing something and so on than a life that I just feel bliss all the time, but I never do anything. I just kind of evaporate. Right. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think most people, you know, say you went into a doctor's office and he lied to you that, you know, you weren't dying of cancer or something like yeah. that. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people would want to know, you know, they yeah. want to know the truth over. Even though it would feel better to, oh, yeah, okay, right. I feel good. Yeah. And, of course, one other thing is that there are, and this is, this is the qualification, remember, I said we could say that all uh, pleasures are valuable. Well, here's the qualification, that, that people take 
people find value, find pleasure in different things, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of the, the worst people find pleasure in really evil things. And, um, okay, so how do we make sense out of that, you know? And um, the, Bernard Williams says the, 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 the hedonistic utilitarian is like an accountant. They're, they're putting check boxes on, on each side of pain and pleasure. Well, the, the, the fact that this psychopath got pleasure out of torturing and murdering all these people, the fact they got pleasure, well, that, at least that's a check in the, in the positive column. Yeah. He said the unblinking eye of the accountant. <laughs> and I think, no, that's not valuable at all. In fact, that's worse. Right. The fact that he got pleasure out of it is worse. So pleasure is not, again, pleasures are good things, all other things being equal. But what's, what's, what is good, what is valuable is, is just way bigger than that. Um, and as a as closing thought on that, would you say that eudaimonism can speak more to like what is evil uh, than hedonism can? Yeah, I mean, hedonism wants to say, you know, if hedonism would say, well, if the if the pain outweighs the good, it's evil, right? And but of course, that has to just you have to wait to see, right? So you have to add up the states of, of pain versus states of pleasure. Now, I think it's probably going to come up with the right answer sometimes, for sure, um, you know, in a really horrific situation. But it depends. And this is where utilitarianism, they said it's, it has to be for everybody involved. And, and this, many people have, have admitted, many utilitarians have admitted that slavery can be justified on utilitarian grounds. And that is just, if you have enough people who get enough pleasure out of the institution of slavery, the masters, that, that will outweigh the, the states of, of uh, displeasure or pain on the part of the slaves, or at least it's possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so if you, you wanna say, well, is chattel slavery evil? Well, we have to do the calculations. Let's see. And, you know, oh, yeah, today it's evil because we have so many units and stuff. But guess what? We, we just added a, a, a new master. So that jacks up the, <laughs> the, the ratio over here. Yep. Oh, guess it's not evil. Yeah. So, you know, of course, pain is related to evil. There, there's no question. So hedonism can contribute for sure just because all other things being equal uh pleasure is good pain is evil but uh in terms of you know explaining more than that it it it, it can get absolutely the wrong answers it doesn't really help us what's what's wrong with slavery is unjust it's not just pleasure pain it's not, that's not unrelated, but uh, so hedonism alone can't, can't give us that. And then if we, we plug hedonism into like utilitarianism, it can't do that either. Because again, it's, it's a, you know, um, it's all about the numbers. Right. And given enough people benefiting from something that can justify, you know, the most unjust things uh, to a minority of people, killing innocent people. Um, you know, the, the common story about the sheriff who has an innocent man of a particular ethnicity in his jail cell. S somebody of that ethnicity did a horrible thing. And so all the men of the town uh, have said, unless you, and they think it's that guy, unless you give him, unless you put him to death, you know, we're going to start killing all those people and burning down buildings and everything. Well, he does a utilitarian calculation, thinks, well, even though I know he's innocent, you know, I'm going to put him to death. Well, that's, that seems to be justified. 
So utilitarianism can't make sense out of it. Hedonistic utilitarianism, for sure. Well, Dr. Horner, you, you've given us a, a ton to think about, um, and um, you know we we would uh, appreciate your insights. And I have just one more closing question for you, sure. if you don't, if you wouldn't mind. Um, what would you like to see from the next generation of Christian ethicists? Where should we be focusing? Well, I think. I, I'll borrow something from Greg Ganzel. I don't know if he talked about this with you, but I, something I've learned from him is uh, to think of streams. Um, did he talk about this? I don't think so. No. Okay. So if you think about, okay, here we are at this place in the stream. Of course, I'm fly fishing here at this place in the stream <laughs> at the moment. Uh, but if you think about what's there, okay, it's important to, to attend to what's there. So always it's, it's important for us as Christian philosophers to think about what's going on. What are the pressing questions? What are, what is, you know, what needs to be addressed? Um, we, you know, when, when we, this Christian Renaissance, um, you know, a lot of Christian philosophers have, have contributed very significant things and pretty sophisticated things into the conversation. Well, as a result, there's, there's much more sophisticated responses, right? So the, 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 those things continue to need to be responded to and so on. But another way to think is, okay, what about upstream? What, what is up there? So that's in the past that has produced this issue here. And what, what is going on now that's gonna produce something downstream, maybe when I'm not even around, or maybe 20 years from now, so 50 years. So think that way in terms of strategy as well. What are some things that uh, brought about our present situation um, can I work on some of those things? What are there certain conversations I need to be in that are upstream sort of conversations that are going to result in uh, really, you know, bad stuff in the in the future? And I think this this is something again that I've learned a lot from from Dr. Ganzel, but I think a lot of the stuff that we see right now in terms, I mean, wide ranging things, but uh, bioethical issues, um, uh, even the humanities, the, the, just the assault on the humanities in universities and so on. Uh, something that's, that, that underlies all that stuff is the way we think about human beings. What is a human being? Uh, what, how, how do humans flourish? Um, which is a deeply ethical question. So um, that's the underlying thing. I think some upstream of a lot of the stuff we're, we're seeing, there was, there was some, you know, bad ideas about what human beings are that are bearing fruit. But, but we always need to talk about that. So, you know, yes, I think people need to respond to present uh, things and some people that's what they're going to focus on but i think this is one of those things that is is so central and so important and makes such a difference in terms of ethics but also you know clearly philosophy of mind political philosophy um, ai technology all, all kinds of stuff is what does it mean to be human and how do we flourish as human beings and um, I would really love to see, uh, you know, succeeding generations of people really invest in developing a, uh, a kind of, uh, again, Gansel, uh, a better humanism in the right sense of humanism. Mm -hmm. That I, I don't think naturalism really has anything close 
to the philosophical resources to be able to give an, a, an account of what a human is, what a person is, but to, to, to justify humanism, that humans have dignity, that they have worth, that they're not just machines and, you know, not just, just uh, mechanistic and that what they do, the humanities, the liberal arts and so on has value. Um, when I was uh, at Oxford, uh, one of the guys I saw present something was A.N. Wilson. And he was a, a, a British writer who had been a Christian and then became an atheist. And he was he became good friends with uh, Christopher Hitchens and so on became sort of a village atheist and he came and spoke at, at Oxford and um, but it's interesting that a few years ago he wrote he wrote an article for the New Statesman that said why I believe again is come back to Christ and he said the reason is I just realized all these things that I think have value this goes back to value theory music, the arts, persons, that they, that, that, that they just, that just can't be sustained in a naturalistic worldview. It, 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 these things find their home in theism and in, in particular Christianity. He said, so that's what I would advocate for, um, you know, as a great need is that's one I'll mention one other thing, but that, that just a focus on really on out human humanizing the humanists, you know, uh, like we have a better story to tell about this. And, and that's a conversation we can be in. We can contribute something. Um, and of course that fits eudaimonism fits perfectly there. Um, but also lots of good work and philosophy of mind and, and action theory and all that. Um, the, the other thing specifically uh, for Christians is that uh, I would say evangelical Christian ethics is pretty thin. It's, it's much more about, you know, I mean, bioethics and everything, which is really important stuff. But as far as the, as the overall renaissance, as you've been saying, of, of Christian philosophies is, is, is concerned, there's been just great strides in some of these other things. I don't think so much in, in Christian philosophical ethics or theological ethics, for that matter. Um, for evangelicals. Um, and so I think one of the things that people who are interested, especially in the more theological side of it, um, is to recover the tradition. You know, that's what I've been trying to do, trying to bring Augustine and Aquinas and these guys back in uh, because there's, it's so rich. And so I would love to see uh, not just um, a renaissance, I'd like to see it at Talbot, but I'd like to see it more broadly, a renaissance of philosophical theology, philosophy of religion, and so on, but uh, moral theology and, and, and moral philosophy, but moral theology. I just think I'd love to see more and more people kind of go the, take that now a little bit more theological turn and bring some of this, this rich, classical heritage that we have back into the to the conversation because there's so much there well dr horner thank you so much um, for your time and for the uh, immensely valuable things you've had to say so so thank you're you for welcome. coming on today you're welcome all righty well thank you for god listening bl god bless all of you <laughs> yeah god bless you <laughs>